from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, presidential sketch comedy and history for people who can't afford Hamilton. Today, part one of a three-part series featuring President 32, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. We want to thank you for being a fan of DB Comedy Presents The Electables. We think even more people would enjoy our show. And if you agree, can you help us? Here's how. Whenever you download one of our episodes, make sure you like us. Add those stars. Give us a review. Recommend it to your friends. The algorithms of your local podcast download shop will appreciate it. And we at DB Comedy will as well. So enjoy this episode, and bring your friends so they can too. So there are certain presidents, as we have already discovered, that because of just what they've done and when they've done them, it's going to require a certain amount of time. And, well, when you get to the guy that has spent the longest amount of time in said presidency, it's going to take a while. And going to need a little extra help, too. So... In addition to our regular Americanists, and we'll let you two introduce yourselves again, please. Hello, Chelsea Denault here as usual. James McRae, social studies teacher for the Serenac Community Schools, and happy to be here once again on the President's Podcast. And so taking advantage of the fact that my friend Gina Bucola and I say hello, Gina. Hello. We happen to work at a place called Roosevelt, University. Wow. And as a result, we can kind of go, hey, who knows about this guy who we teach under? And Gina said, I know. And she's here with us. And how about if you may would like to introduce yourselves to the electables audience, Dr. Rung? Hi, I'm uh, Margie Rung, and I teach history at Roosevelt University, and I'm also the director of its Center for New Deal Studies. And I just want to say that I'm very impressed that you call it Roosevelt and and not Roosevelt. You know, my father father always called it Roosevelt, and I'm going to get to that because it's something we've sort of talked about in preparation for this. Uh, and we also, and yes, we are pretty, pretty even on the historians versus comedians roster. So Joe is here. That would be me. Paul is here and par usual on me. And Sandy's here and I am me. I am Tommy and I am somewhat here. Hi, I'm Sylvia. All right. And so, okay, Franklin Delano Roosevelt of the wait, 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 wait. what? Huh? Did I miss, forget somebody? After Franklin Roosevelt? I thought it was named after Kermit Roosevelt. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Kermikins or Quinnikins. Lovely. Well, our school color is green, so you would be forgiven for thinking that. <laughs> Not easy to think otherwise. Can I? I just kind of confirm what I've heard, I guess, which is that basically Franklin Roosevelt comes from like the other side of the Roosevelt family than Theodore and like that they don't really get along the two sides of the Roosevelt family. And that's kind of the one side is the Democratic side and the other side is the Republican side of the Roosevelt family. And that's how Franklin ends up being a Democrat is because he comes from the, the Democratic half of the Roosevelt clan. Yeah, the Democrat, the the Democrats were the Hyde Park kind of 
upper Hudson Valley Roosevelt's and then the Oyster Bay Roosevelt's were Republican, but they all ran in the same social circles and they, mm-hmm. you know, they all went to dinners together. And so I, while they might not have seen eye to eye on all politics, I think they were of the same kind of social, the same social status. And therefore I'm not sure they were mortal enemies. I, right. I think when, when Franklin and Eleanor both got into politics, then it became a little uncomfortable, for example, in the 1920s, because Eleanor really knew how to t- take the gloves off if she wanted to. Um, so the, that, I think, did cause some tension in the family. And, and Alice... Um, she didn't Russell's know the meaning daughter. of gloves. Yeah. <laughs> she, she wasn't a very nice person. So. No. Now, Franklin <laughs> like grew, up stir a, the pot. grew up a very wealthy We could come up with many adjectives for Alice Roosevelt, yeah. but nice would not yes. be one. Nice yeah. would not be one of them. Yeah. She was about as nice as the snake she kept as a pet. But yeah. Cotillion in a New York Ballroom, 1902. Oh, Alice, darling, why are we hiding in powder room during Cotillion? To avoid reporters, Countess, Papa's spectacles steam up when he reads stories like that dreadful New York Times Society page item. President Roosevelt's daughter, Princess Alice, spotted smoking cigarette outside Broadway Saloon. The nerve. Why are you so upset about being called Princess, darling? Back in Russia, everyone loves Tsar's daughters or heirs. Well, the princess part is fine. But how dare they imply that I'd patronize a common saloon? It was Delmonico's, for God's sake. If I don't find a way to garner some positive press notices soon, Papa will assign a secret service detail to me. Looks like already happened, darling, based on that man in dress at mirror checking spinach and teeth. Uh, That's not a secret service agent in drag, Countess. It's my cousin, Eleanor. Wait, I've thought of a publicity stunt. We'll transform my tall, plain dower cousin Eleanor into a lovely gay debutante, and I'll take all the credit. (laughs) Sounds like plot of silly novel, but we try, my fair darling. That's the spirit. Why, if it isn't cousin Eleanor? Oh, my cousin Alice, you look lovely as always. I must say, you haven't changed either. I meet my friend, Countess Marguerite Cassini, the Russian ambassador's niece. Lovely to meet you, Countess. Your uncle must be quite concerned about the Japanese. Darling, so Nicholas, crush Japanese, they never bother anyone again. And I wonder you have a little water. Thank you, that's very kind. Oh, my. Oh, Russian water certainly tastes differently from American. Oh, yes. We have it distilled from potatoes. Uh, why is it black dress, darling? Are you in mourning? Oh, yes. For President McKinley, of course. Oh, I only need to wear it for one more year. Then back to my usual gay gray. Oh, Eleanor, this is the 20th century, albeit barely. We aren't bound to ancient customs. Why, look at me, all in pink, even though I was devastated by Mr. McKinley's passing. 
I understood you danced a jig when you heard the news. A jig of sorrow? Still, Eleanor, aren't you excited to learn that Uncle Teedy was now president? Only slightly. And I felt so guilty that I had my corset tightened. Oh, dear. Well, that was a rather personal admission. Oh, this Russian water is making me giddy. Oh, yes, it goes your head fast. Uh, Loosen that tight bun in hair. You'll feel better. Oh, well, these whalebone hairpins are a bit stiff. Why, Eleanor, you've liberated your lovely blonde tresses as surely as Papa liberated the Cubans. And speaking of peasants, your pretty face is rather brown. Yes, you've been getting too much sun, Eleanor, but just a little powder can help that. Face powder, like prostitutes and actresses use. Exactly. Ethel Beranor is a bit of both. And this is her favorite brand. A slouch a bit so I can reach your forehead. Mm, you have nice figure when you slouch. Here, I place rose in decolletage. Draw some attention to bosom. <laughs> Why bother? My bosom will already be at eye level with most of my dance partners. <laughs> oh my, what is in that water? Apparently an elixir that's made you beautiful, Eleanor. You will drive the boys so wild that Papa will want to shoot them. <laughs> Heaven forbid. I don't want men pursuing me. <gasps> oh, Eleanor, I hope your sapphic schoolmistress, Madame Silvestri, hasn't convinced you to seek a Boston marriage. Oh, Franklin and I are thinking of a New York wedding. <laughs> oh, dear, how indiscreet of me. Franklin? Franklin who? Oh, oh heavens, this Russian water has lubricated my tongue. Alice, I'm secretly engaged to fifth cousin Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin mm -hmm. Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. The handsome Hyde Park Franklin Roosevelt with the fabulously wealthy widowed mother. Oh, does he have a brother? Can it count as? <gasps> Congratulations on capturing the family prize, Eleanor. How did you manage it, you six-foot bucktooth vixen? Did you appeal to his sense of compassion? Why, of course. I brought him with me to a tenement where I'm teaching immigrant children how to read and write. Afterwards, he said he never knew people lived in such conditions and asked if I could be his lifelong teacher in mercy. Like poets say, love is blind, deaf, and dumb. Oh, promise that you'll keep my secret, Alice. Of course. I can't think of a soul who'd be interested. Well, off with you then, Eleanor. Enjoy your last gay fling of youth before becoming an old, dowdy wife. Thank you, Alice. Although I hope I'll find time for a few gay flings after Franklin and I are wed. <laughs> Ta-ta! So your plan big fat failure, darling. Oh, don't feel sorry for me, Countess. Pity Eleanor, if anyone. Handsome and wealthy as Franklin may be, he's a mental lightweight who'll never amount to anything. He'll spend his life yachting and playing polo, and Eleanor will be cooped up in some great house, raising his children, never going anywhere or meeting anyone. The world will forget about her. 
Um, most of Franklin's money growing up, the one that sent him to Groton, and or did you, am I pronouncing that correctly? I have no idea. And then Harvard. It was Delano money, not Roosevelt money. Am I correct about that? Most of it. I mean, the, the Roosevelt still, James still had some money, basically, probably mostly in real estate, but, you know, because he had a lot of land. Um, yeah. But the Delano money, yeah, came from the, well, the polite way of saying it is the China trade, but, you know, it was opium. Um, so, yeah, that money came in the mid 19th century. Um, there's a there's a quote that's attributed to Eleanor's father about the Democratic side, which is this. He said, I wouldn't say that all Democrats are horse thieves, but every horse thief I've met is a Democrat. I, I want to. <laughs> and the reason I'm bringing this up is to put this to you. So the Roosevelt money comes from the opium trade. Joe Kennedy was a bootlegger. Is it possible that the only good Democratic presidents come from crime families? <laughs> and as a member of the criminal element, could I say, you're welcome. <laughs> I like well, this diagram. It's really yeah. Oh, man. There's a weird overlap. Maybe, no, but maybe the connection is more the mind-altering substances. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not no the criminal, it's... The illicit, yeah. it's the booze and the drugs. It's the alcohol and the opium. And the chronic illnesses, let's not forget Stop. the chronic illnesses. Yeah, for both, a lot of parallels. Right? Yeah. Getting ahead of ourselves. Okay. I want to talk about, I, I, I'd like to hear more about uh, Roosevelt and Eleanor, kind of the early days, uh, and also about Roosevelt's kind of early political career, and also just kind of Roosevelt the individual, because everything I've heard is that he was just incredibly enigmatic, right? That he was... He was publicly charming, but incredibly private at the same time. Very difficult to get to know on a personal level. And of course, his interesting relationship with Eleanor, I, I think, deserves some attention, too, because I'm not sure that we'll ever see a, a presidential coupling quite like that. I mean, again, the Kennedys in some aspects, but I think I see what you're getting at. I think the Clintons are a better analogy. Clintons are closer. Yeah, Kennedy's Jackie wasn't nearly as powerful or influential. I we'll find out some stuff. Well, had a I would say Jackie had a different kind of influence and it was power. more social. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. it was it was more a, a, an aesthetic, and she brought a certain je ne sais quoi to the White House, and they were the smart young couple of the 60s, but as far as a political powerhouse, uh, I think that would be more lopsided toward Kennedy if, as opposed to what Eleanor and Franklin had. He followed Uncle Teddy's, well, no, cousin Teddy's, uh, Teddy, Teddy was uh, Eleanor's uncle, very consciously have followed his uncle's example in becoming undersecretary of the Navy, but he did not leave to fight a war, whereas Teddy did. So they had very different experiences. So um, that was kind of means that he was planning to become the president from being, when he was a very young man. Yeah, I would say he was ambitious. Um, I don't know if he was as calculating as, as that, but uh, he, he ran into Josephus Daniels at the convention of of 1912 and that's sort of how he became undersecretary of the navy um because at that point it's such a small world you know you just kind of run into people and they <laughs> offer you jobs um without hardly knowing you uh he was a big because, wilson man wasn't he 
yeah, he was a big supporter of Wilson, but um, yeah, so I think he, you know, he didn't necessarily lobby for the job, but given the opportunity, he jumped at the chance um, and saw it as an important stepping stone. But you're right, I think he was looking at his, um, his wife's uncle as a, a kind of model for how you navigate politics, from at least from the other party, right? <laughs> Warm Springs, Georgia, 1922. Keep going, Eleanor. Keep going. Oh, Franklin! Oh, Eleanor. Yes? Yes? I'm close. I'm not sure how much longer I can bear your weight upon me, Franklin. Patience, Eleanor. I'm almost there. Almost there. Oh, Eleanor, I can't thank you enough for carrying me on your back to these warm springs. You're welcome, Franklin, but can't we please purchase a wheelchair? Not a chance, my dear. If I'm photographed being wheeled around like a cripple, it will destroy my public image of virility and ruin my chance of a political comeback. So it's more manly to be photographed draped over your wife's shoulders? It'll be seen as good-natured Roosevelt horseplay. Uh, tomorrow, make the children carry me here. This can't continue, Franklin. The press will get wise to you sooner or later. By that time, I'll be so powerful the reporters will pretend I can dance like Nijinsky. Until then, I'll be leaning on you and the boys. Literally. Your condition could be an asset, you know. Are you mad, Eleanor? Americans won't elect a physically compromised president. Mentally compromised, sure. They just did it in 1920. But a cripple, they'd rather vote for an Italian. But aren't there other forms of strength? What about compassion, Franklin? What about empathy? These are forms of strength, too. By admitting you have polio, you can communicate to voters that you understand suffering. By Jove, Eleanor, I... I think you may have a point. Think about it, Franklin. A new deal for the country's less fortunate with social security and health insurance. Think about it, Eleanor. Fundraising opportunities. There are lots of rich polio victims. We can throw some splendid balls and parties to raise money for treatment and score me some invaluable publicity. I'll be our first paralyzed president. Are you forgetting your former boss, Mr. Wilson? Oh, not at all. That poor bastard was vegetable by the end of his second term, and his wife wound up running the country. I don't like that glint in your eyes, Eleanor. Don't be silly, frankly. I needn't wait until you're on your deathbed to start exercising power, when I know you'll always listen to my wise counsel. Not when it comes to your silly utopian ideals about a new deal and a fair shake, I won't. Well, I suppose I can always talk about them with writers with the women's magazines when I'm not expressing my admiration for my poor, crippled polio victim husband. You're pretty when you're ruthless, dear. Oh, uh, it appears I've lost control of my bowels again. Uh, would you mind grabbing a bucket, Eleanor, and do a bit of bailing? Yes, Franklin, I'll always be here to bail you out.
a question because this is one of the one of the things that we sort of talked about as in as we're leading up is that again we're starting to get family memories of certain of presidents kind of with this and i'm the child of depression babies and fdr without question is held up kind of i don't want to say godlike but really held up as in a lot of ways a savior and I think one of the things that was sort of taught was that, you know, how could a rich person do what happened and do what he was able to do with depression? And one of the answers seems to be this sense of, or that was taught by us, but to us, was a sense of noblesse oblige, you know, uh, or, you know, the Spider-Man credo, right? <laughs> with great power comes great responsibility. It sounds like when you were talking about the two halves of the family, even though they were Democratic and Republican, there seemed to be this sense that the, of there seemed to be that sense on both sides of the family, just different political parties get it to a different way. Is that fair? Oh, I think that's completely accurate. Yeah, I think that especially in the late 19th century, that sort of idea that you, you know, you sort of give back to your lessers, um, you know, it's an act of charity. Uh, that was was definitely prevalent in in the Roosevelt family. I mean, the awkward thing about Eleanor's side is that uh, there's the southern there's the southern wing. Um, so that you know, sort of white supremacy aspect of the family was very very much there. Uh, and she used to sort of regale you know be regaled with these plantation stories and kind of grew up in that in that atmosphere um but you know her father and and theodore were also in a family where their father felt that you know it was important to to help out the the poor and but again not out of a sense really of you know helping them uplifting them and creating a more equitable society but like you know throw your crumbs literally throw your crumbs at them as they did in italy um during one of their John. So yeah, I think that's that's very accurate, Joe. And I think that was true also of the Delano's and the Roosevelt's and Hyde Park. Um, but I also by by the 1920s, it's a different world. And I think both Eleanor and Franklin have evolved in different ways um, in their understanding of what public service meant changed over time. So maybe a little less of that paternalism. Not never, I don't think it was ever completely gone, but um, maybe wasn't as prominent or uh, in their thought by the 1930s. James has been trying to jump in, so. Well, okay, so I, I was I was going to jump in on what we were saying before, but I, I want to know about the nomination process because in, in 1932, I mean, you, Hoover's running again. He's he's going to lose, right? I mean, the, the Democrats the Democrats know this is their shot. They've been shut out since 1916. They can put somebody up there; they're going to win. They choose this guy. It, was Roosevelt just the obvious choice because he was the relatively popular governor of a of a major swing state, or was you know what other uh, you know candidates were there? Was he the Al Smith state? tried to cockwalk him? Did he not? Mm -hmm. Al Smith was still in contention at this point. Yeah. So I I just think that's interesting because you know obviously Franklin Roosevelt becomes Franklin Roosevelt becomes the model for the. Democratic Party's presidents. I mean, like literally, even today, you know, the Democratic Party associates itself with the works of Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal. Um, 
but you know that you know I, I think um, as was alluded to earlier, Roosevelt runs in 1932. He doesn't know what he's necessarily going to do when he gets there. So I, I think the choice yeah. of him is, is is very interesting. I can't remember how many ballots there were, but there were a lot of ballots at that convention. And so there were, I there were oh, maybe a dozen people in the mix. Um, and Garner was one of them and who eventually becomes the vice presidential nominee. Yeah, um, Garner, yes. Yeah, and, and so there was a ton of back behind the scenes horse the horse trading going on during the, the convention to get various nominees as the ballots went on to switch to Roosevelt. Um, so I don't think it was a given at all that he was going to get the nomination. It was exhausting. Uh, and James Farley, who was his campaign manager, was was a key player, as was Louis Howe. Um, and they were really pressuring various people. William, uh, at some point, William Randolph Hearst kind of throws his support towards Roosevelt. That helps. You know, you get one or two people, and a couple of delegates here and there, um, and, and slowly he built up his lead, but it took quite a few, quite a few ballots. So, yeah. Was the election itself ever in doubt once it got rolling? I don't think so, but you know, we've all been surprised. There's a story, probably apocryphal, that uh, a friend of Hoover gave Hoover this advice on the eve of the election: vote for Roosevelt and make it unanimous. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, yeah. So, what does this FDR fella do once he gets into the White House? Tune in to our next episode, FDR 2, The Depression Years. Next. DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written, produced, and performed by Gina Bocola, Sandy Bykowski, Joseph Fedorko, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the Electables, visit DB Comedy's host page on simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque. Join us on the Trident Network and listen to us on World Perspectives Radio Chicago on Live365.com and Hard Lens Media. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to like.